Welcome to another episode of the Fifth Quarter Conversations Beyond the X's and O's with Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. And uh, today's episode, we have joining us uh, college coach and author Bob Walsh. Um, very excited to have a chance to hear him speak. I was fortunate to actually moderate his clinic session back in last spring uh, during the the virtual uh, coaches clinic, and uh, have um, you know awareness of him through uh, through Zach Bovair and uh, just uh, Dan Murphy attending some of his uh, leadership events. And so, Jeff, I'm really looking forward to uh, to really kind of uh, doing a deep discussion here with uh, Coach Walsh and, and learn a little bit more about some of the uh, leadership principles and things that he's um, he's picked up over the years. Yeah, Layson, there's a lot of people you and I know that talk the talk. Bob has walked the walk. He's, you know, D1 head coach at Maine. He's got a great story about his journey coming from Providence to uh, Rhode Island College at Division Three. He's worked for some of the best, most respected basketball people in Timmy Welsh and Ed Cooley and, you know, the author entitled to nothing. So this is going to be great. Coach, thank you. I want to jump in right away and uh, talk about one of the things that jumped out was when you took over, you talked about effort level. And uh, maybe just expand on your thoughts and how you would coach effort, encourage it, and, and let our listeners know what your thoughts on effort. Well, thanks, guys. It's great to have the conversation. I appreciate the kind words. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things when, when I was an assistant coach, I realized it was something you could control, right? How hard you could compete. It was something, and there's a lot of stuff as a coach you can't control, you know? So you, you do the best you can with what you can control. And uh, I just thought the, the foundation of our program was gonna be our compete level. Uh, the effort that we gave every day, no matter what it was, whether it was going to class or study hall or in the gym or in the weight room. So um, I, I just think that's where it all starts, right? It, it's a physical pursuit, what we're doing. And that's the most important thing that you can control. You know, I really competitive, tough teams were always tough to beat, right? It was just, you know, man, they play so hard. They may not necessarily have the best players, the best talent. Maybe the ball doesn't go in as much as you'd like. They don't shoot it that well. But um, regardless of the talent we were able to get um, or the offense we were going to run, we were going to uh, compete. And that was how we were going to judge ourselves. And, and really, it was just a mindset that we talked about all the time. And then what it was, was if it matters to you, you have to reward it, right? You have to, you know, you know, compete has to become a behavior. It can't just be a word, right? So when, you know, you're first on the floor for a loose ball, you know, I'd blow the whistle and say, fellas, that's competing. You know, when you turn the ball over on a fast break and you're the first guy back down the floor and you get a deflection uh, to stop a three on two, you know, and the ball goes out of bounds and, and you save an easy basket after your turnover, you know, that's competing. When you keep a rebound alive on the offensive end, even though you can't get it, but you go in there when the ball's in the air and, and find a way to tip it out and your teammate gets an extra possession. So you point out the behaviors that define effort, define competing for you, and you celebrate those behaviors, and then you have to reward them. You know, you, you have to you know, and the ultimate reward is playing time, right? If, if you um, celebrate your most competitive guys, if competition and compete level is important to you, uh, you have to reward it with playing time. And if you do that, 
the guys start to get the message that that's how I'm being evaluated. Um, you know, we, we talked about three things as sort of our core behaviors, uh, compete, produce, and be a great teammate, you know, and compete was always the first one. And we defined it for our guys, and that came to define who we were as a team. You know, Coach, again, though, you're going into a Division three where there's different rules, different commitment levels perceived, and then a Division one. Was this concept, you're non-negotiable, so effort's going to be the biggest thing. Both of your teams realize that as soon as they meet you. How was that met, or was there someone in that locker room that you had to pull aside and maybe have a little extra follow-up? You know, good player, but the effort wasn't there. How would you address that? What a great question. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be some resistance to something that's new. What I found at Rhode Island College, in, in a general sense, it was easier to get the buy-in because I had really talented players. You know, at Rhode Island College, I took over the best – team in the league. Uh, at Maine, I took over the worst team in the league. So it was easier for to get the guys bought in to competing because what I was asking them to do was a little bit easier for them. They were just more talented, more gifted, had, had better ability. Uh, at Maine, it was a little different because they didn't see the reward, right? The effort and, and the work ethic and all the challenging stuff that we did to try and, try and get them to compete was harder and took longer to create buy-in because they weren't seeing success. They didn't look at it as, okay, this is translating into, um, you know, into wins and losses right away. So that player who's a talented kid who's used to relying on his talent, um, getting him to compete is, is a great challenge for for any coach. First of all, I think you got to be consistent. Look, if your compete level isn't where it needs to be, you know, I don't care how good you think you are, right? It's it's going to hurt us in the long run as a team if you're out there playing and you're not giving your best effort. It's going to catch up to us. So you have to stick to it. Um, you know, the second thing is is we always talked about it from a character development standpoint, our program. Like, who do you want to be? Like, do you want to be the guy who just kind of cuts corners and tries to, you know, show up and get away with things? And and you might be good enough, you know, you might be good enough to, to get away with it, right? You might be talented enough, but then when you meet somebody who's got a similar level of talent to you, who's willing to compete harder and work harder, they're going to beat you. So um, we tried to talk about it in the sense of, and I would ask the question, who do you want to be, right? Do you want to be somebody who's just as good as his ability and maybe, you know, at a Division three college, you're good enough to play, but moving forward, uh, you're not going to be good enough? Or do you want to be somebody who everybody looks at and go, man, I don't want to play against that guy because of the way he competes. And uh, it takes time. And look, you have to be willing to sacrifice something if competing matters or if your culture matters, right? Um, that guy's probably got to come off the bench, right? Maybe he's going to play because he can help you, but, you know, you can't reward him starting and playing 35 minutes, you know? Um, and, and it's a balancing act that you've got to find. Uh, it's one of the reasons why production is in there as well, because I do think sometimes we fall into the trap of competing really hard uh, and not getting anywhere, right? If, if you're competing really hard and you're not producing, something's wrong. Maybe we're valuing the wrong thing. So um, 
it, it is certainly always a challenging conversation for a coach, no doubt. You know, and I think obviously that all comes from trust and truth. Um, but again, you know, you get to Maine, you're on the clock. A lot of high school coaches get that chance as a varsity head job. They're on the clock, you know, but talking recruiting wise, even at Division Three, or when you get to Maine, you know, recruiting, you got to get the best players that fit you, your personality, the school. But how hard is it when you're recruiting, you know, you're telling Johnny you're a good fit here, you're going to be a real good player. You know, we don't always point out the weaknesses, you know, that Johnny, you can't really shoot the three. You know, we're, you know, you, you kind of lead them and recruit them and tell them. And then once you get them on your campus, how do you flip that switch, you know, from recruiting, I'm glad you're here. Now here's the you know, here's the fastball. Here's the truth about your game and how you're going to fit into our program. I've always been a direct truth teller, and, I, and I've always believed in that. So uh, I would tell you, especially when you're recruiting at a place like Maine, you've got to be telling them the truth from the get-go in, in recruiting. Like, look, we're four hours away from every other Division I school in the country. We have long bus rides. It's dark and cold in the winter. You know, we used to always say, but it's 72 and sunny in the gym every single day, you know? But I, I was never trying to hide anything in recruiting. Uh, and and even, I, I also think recruits will appreciate, you know what, I love your toughness. I love the way you get to the rim. You know, what do you think you need to work on? You know, ask them that question. Well, yeah. You know what? You need to become a more consistent shooter. Well, here's how we're going to work on that. Our individual development program is this and this. So I just I think the team responds better when you tell them the truth, even if it's some stuff they don't want to hear. I think recruits do as well. You know, I don't want to paint a picture that, hey, here's how good you are and here's what you're going to do when you get here and then have you show up and hear me saying, you know, you can't do that. So uh I want to be I want to be a direct truth teller all the time. I think it's actually helpful in recruiting, and, and certainly when you're at a place that has some challenges at Maine, um, you know they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna figure it out sooner or later. So the, you might as well get to it. Coach, sticking to the the recruiting uh, conversation, how do you how do you determine if a player is a fit into that matrix of are they competitive? Can they produce? and the, the type of character that you want, because, you know, it, it can be a hit in this situation. Also a great question. I, I like to watch them play a bad game. I, I like to get tape of a game where they didn't play well. Um, you know, send me your highlights. Wow. He looks good enough. This is great. Okay. You know, we're, we, we saw him play in the summer, you know, he played pretty well. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm not sure uh, character is revealed as well as when everything is going great, you know? Um, so I, I like to see when things aren't going well. I like to talk to a kid after a bad game. I like to watch the way he interacts with his coach and his teammates um, when he's in foul trouble and he's on the bench or when he's not playing well and his coach took him out of the game. So uh, I think there are ways to, uh, you know, figure that out. And, and certainly it's never going to be perfect, but there are ways – to tell if that's the type of kid that um, 
you know, you're going to want to coach, right? And, and, and not like, we all want to know, can I win with these kids, right? Like, is he good enough for me to win with? I kind of want to know if I'm okay losing with you, right? Like, like not that we want to lose, but, you know, am I okay with your effort, with your character, with your approach? Will I enjoy coaching you uh, even if we're struggling to win? So, um, you know, you got to talk to a lot of people. Um, the, the, you've got to define for yourself what competing is, right? So if I use the word compete and I gave you some examples earlier, you know, first on the floor to a loose ball, hustling back on defense, keeping plays alive. Okay. Does he do those things? Right. You know, is he somebody, you know, exhibiting the behaviors that I look for as far as somebody who's competitive and tough? Uh, it's a challenge, certainly at a place like Maine too, where, you know, travel is hard, right? I wasn't going to see players four or five times during the year. You know, as the head coach, you're coaching your own team. You're a long way away from a lot of times I saw a kid play live once and had to make an evaluation. Uh, and with some of the rules the NCAA has with division one and limited time, you can see guys, it's certainly tough. So you've got to be, you got to be on your toes and know what you're looking for. Another question as a high school coach, how can we help you and your staff during that evaluation process to to kind of make sure that you're getting you know the right information the, the right data that you need in order to determine if that that player is a fit i think it's different for every coach and every program so i would ask i would ask the question right of of a, of a player who's getting recruited but um you know <clears throat> to me it starts with a good highlight film and saying you know if, if you're talking about initiating the recruiting you know a good four to six minute highlight film that I can just click on and say, okay, do I like, you know, do I like what I see? You know, it's certainly not the end of the evaluation. It's just the beginning. Um, and then it's being honest, right? It, it, it's talking about the kid in different situations. You know, what's he, you know, does he, you know, is he, is he a fun kid to be around? You know, do his teammates gravitate towards him? Um, <clears throat> you know, is he willing you know, is it does he show leadership qualities? Will his team listen to him? But is he willing to listen to his teammates? You know, a lot of guys that are being recruited are the best player on their team, and they're used to telling people what to do, but maybe not, you know, so much listening to what their teammates are saying. You know, how do they fit in from that perspective? So, um, you know, I, I think giving us a little bit more, giving us the honesty about the kid off the floor, what he's like to coach, what he's like in practice every day, um, how he responds to winning and losing, uh, as opposed to just what type of player he is. Um, you know, it's really helpful. And, and just, just ask the question, hey, coach, what do you really want to know about him? You know, I believe in this kid. Tell me, tell me what you need to know about him uh, so I can help you make the right decision on him for your program. In the book, you talked about uh, one of the, the the mantras, the phases that you would often use within the within your team and your program is everything matters. How did you instill that on a on a daily basis? I mean, really, from the moment you walk in the door and you take over a program, how, how do you build that that sense of urgency? I lived it first of all, which I think is really really important. Whatever it is, you're you know they don't have to hear it to know it; they're going to see it, right? So. Um, it started for us, like our accountability started with the academics and it started with being at your eight o'clock class on time. And I was there, you know, I was at, you know, two, three times a week, I was at their classes in the morning 
just to see them so that they knew, okay, this matters to coach. Like if I'm five minutes late for my eight o'clock class, it matters. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, always in the gym early for practice. If guys wanted to get shots up, willing to stay late, you know, they would see me in the weight room, even in the off season when I wasn't allowed to monitor them. Right. I was there. Um, you know, and, and it just, it starts with living it. And then it's, um, you know, continuing to hold guys accountable for what's important and, and really being consistent with it. So it's, you know, it can't just be, ah, he was a couple of minutes late today, but we got to get practice going. So, you know, we'll just, we'll just forget that happened, you know, or he was late to shoot around, but you know, we got a big game at three o'clock. So, you know what, let's just win the game. And then everybody forgets about it. Like that stuff really has to matter to you and you have to be consistent with them. I think, you know, the biggest mistake you make as a coach and, and we all do it or as a leader sometimes is say one thing and do another. So, um, you know, they saw all the stuff off the court really mattered to me and I tried to live it as much as possible. One of the tips I got from a golf coach and, you know, you win or lose on 18, you miss the putt and everyone tells their child, hey, act right. Everyone's still looking. So the coach would quietly follow the recruit and their parents to the parking lot because mm. that's where usually he or she would unload and have a meltdown. And uh, so I always thought that was a pretty good tip because everyone knows, you know, try to keep your best foot forward. And, and then, yeah, you try to recruit kids that you would want in your home that you're going to trust. I mean, we're not running, you know, a perfect society, all angels, but do you want to be around them? Do you want those kids in your home? And, you know, coach, maybe give us your thoughts, you know, high school, college, and building a program over just building a team. And now with the transfer portal and, you know, everything going crazy, but to sustain a great high school program or to build it or a college, what was your plan to build a program? Culture first, uh, to be honest. And, and I think that's really like put your culture first and uh, always uh, go back to what's important to your culture. You know, so figure out who you are as a coach, um, you know, what fits your school, the school that you're at. You know, I was lucky because I didn't know this when I got to Rhode Island College, but um, it, it's a blue collar state school. And it, it attracts a lot of first generation kids and, and really tough, hungry kids that, you know, maybe don't come from a lot of, you know, great financial background. And, and you know, that competitive edge was kind, it kind of fit the school. So like what I brought to um, the program and what I wanted it to be fit the school perfectly. And I was kind of lucky in that regard. So I, I would certainly understand your surroundings, but but figure out who you are, like what's really important to you. What are those, you know, one, two or three things that um, really matter to you as far as developing players, developing your team, developing your program every day. Um, and then, you know, you have to instill it in your kids right away. And, and whenever it uh, whenever it gets challenged, you have to go back to your culture. Your culture is more important then your next win, your culture is more important than your most talented offensive player. Um, your coach culture, you know, to me, 
that's what sustains long term. It's how you go about your business. And I know the word culture is like oversaturated these days. You know, it's it's a huge buzzword, but but really it's it's just, you know, how do you go about your business and and, and how do you handle your day-to-day process? Um, that to me is what sustains long term. Coach, you're opening meeting with your team. You know, you've been through the interview process. You get the keys to the office. You know you've got to get some internal leadership. You know there's going to be some locker room lawyers. What is that first meeting for you? And what's something, obviously culture is going to be big, but what's some of those key advice points you would give to a new coach at that opening meeting? It's something I learned at Rhode Island College, and hopefully I took with me, ask questions. Um, get them to speak more than they have to listen to you, right? That's the first step in learning who your kids are, what they like and they don't like, you know, what the, what the school is all about, what the program is all about. And, it, and it's the first step towards creating some ownership for them. Like, hey, guys, this is your program. You've been here longer than I have, right? I mean, I just got here. So uh, get them to talk about what's important to them. And the more you can get them to talk, uh, the more you will learn exactly what you're dealing with, what you have to fix, what buttons you can push right away, uh, what things you may be like, huh, you know what? They didn't really emphasize you know, conditioning very much. So Maybe 20 suicides in 20 minutes tomorrow isn't, isn't the best idea right now or, or whatever it is. So, um, you know, the more you can, I, I think the mistake we make a lot is that that first meeting is about me as the leader and projecting on them, here's who I am and here's what this is going to be. And it creates a relationship dynamic, which is I'm going to tell you what to do and then you're going to do it. And I think that can be successful, but I don't know if that can be elite, right? That becomes compliant. All right, I show up, coach tells me what to do, I do it. If the coach is smart and the players are talented, you'll be pretty good. So I would try and let them talk as much in the first meeting and don't feel the urge like we all do to get your message across so quickly. You know, we want to get, I mean, they're going to learn who you are over time and what you do every day. You don't have to deliver all of that to them in that first meeting. Get to know them. Listen listen to what they are all about. And Layson and I talk about this all the time, Coach, and I think you're a great example, and you've probably said the word 10 times, is you got to be a great listener. And that's really something uh, that obviously you stressed in, in building programs. You know, Coach, fill me in again on how to play pickup. And I think, Layson, you can do this at any level. You let me know. But uh, he has a couple really good points. We all steal from each other. But coach, tell us your rules when you started playing pickup. I think pickup is really important. I know some coaches kind of don't don't feel that way, and they think, well, it's you know, it's in the summer, they're on their own, it's lazy, it's bad habits. I just think if it's something your players are going to do a lot, then they should do it the right way. And, and I, you know, I've said I said in the book. The way our kids played pickup became a huge part of our championship culture at Rhode Island College. And really, I learned this from them. Um, they would pick three teams. You know, usually we had enough guys. We'd have, you know, 
17, 18, 19 guys or whatever going out for the team in the fall, they would pick three teams at the beginning of the week and they kept the teams for the entire week. And every win counted, right? So, so the first thing was at the end of the week, the team that lost the most games that week got up Monday morning and ran a mile, right? 7 a.m. before class. So the games mattered, right? Who won and lost mattered. It wasn't the old, well, it's six to two, you know, they're going to beat us, you know, let's just take it easy. I'll try and get on the next, you know, the next game. Um, you know, we played games to seven. Everything was worth one point. Uh, I know that's different for some coaches. They want to, you know, twos and threes or whatever. I didn't want any arguments over was his foot on the line? Was that this? Was that? And I wanted to encourage guys getting to the rim. Um, and it was straight to seven. So the games were quick. Uh, when the game ended, and I think a lot of people do this, you know, you had to validate the game by making a free throw. So if it's six five and you score the seventh point, whoever scored that bucket, you line up for a free throw, just like it's a game, you know, four defensive players, two offensive players, you shoot it, you make it. The game's over. If you miss it, the ball's live. You play it, uh, and you're back to six. You know, six five trying trying to win. Um, one of the most important things that that we put in was uh, the offense does not call fouls. The offense is not allowed to call a foul, so the defense has to call a foul. And I always said, you know, it's a trust issue, guys. If you foul somebody, call it. That's it. You know, and um, were there some arguments over at a time? Sure. But there were a lot less arguments than when you have the guy on offense, game point, who just drives it to the rim, runs into people, throws it up, and just just stops playing and just expects everybody to give him the ball, right? Defense calls a foul. If there's no foul, uh, play through it. Um, and then uh, we had a couple of rules. And, and I know this sounds complicated, but it really wasn't that hard to pull off, uh, you know, running the floor. If the offense scored a basket and all five offensive players didn't cross half court, the basket didn't count. It was a turnover. So everybody had to run the floor and cross half court. Uh, in turn, if the offense scored a basket with all five players across half court and a defensive player had yet to cross half court, the basket counted and they got the ball back, right? So there was no lazy turnover, oh, you know, hang your head, stand back, like, you literally, and, and guys would be yelling, run, run. Like, you know, if you had a three on one and the big guy was trailing the play, like they're yelling at him to run. So, um, you know, that made the games really competitive. I, you know, it was a huge element aspect of our program. One, from a recruiting standpoint, you know, at the Division three level, kids come visit and they go play with your guys and that's how they get to know them. Um, kids love the competitive edge in recruiting. Um, but, but we were teaching our guys how to win, right? I mean, I mean the games mattered. And, and our guys still to this day talk about the pickup games that we played in the rec center and how they'd love to go back there. They were learning habits on how to win. And, and what I learned was, you know, so much of the things that you would expect to have to coach to work out, I didn't have to coach because of the way our guys handled the fall. And people don't believe me when I say this, in nine years at Rhode Island College, I never once coached good shot, bad shot. I never, ever, ever said, well, that's a bad shot. We got to get better shots. Now, did we take some bad shots? Of course we did. Every team does. But, you know, try, you know, if you're a big guy who doesn't shoot a, a lot of threes, 
you know, try pulling up for three in a 6-6 game on a Friday when if you lose, you're getting up Monday morning and running at 7 a.m., right? You are going to hear it from your team. And, and honestly, that, that surprised me, but so much of that stuff was worked out. Guys making stupid plays, lazy plays, not defending, right? Same thing, you know, 6-6 Friday afternoon. Try not running back on defense right after turning the ball over and see how your teammates like that one. So, so many of the habits that you're trying to form as a coach for us were formed in those pickup games, and it, it was a huge part of our championship culture and being able to sustain it. Coach, you know, we often talk about buy-in and, and getting our players to buy-in, but as a coach, how did you get buy-in from not just the players, but the parents, the administration, and, and, and the student body at the schools? Well, they're different, they're different levels there. I mean, I think I think one of them is sharing your vision clearly, right? Like being upfront and direct, certainly with the administration about um, you know, who you're gonna be, what what you're all about, right? I mean, I you know, my practices were very intense, but I, I'm not a, like, like I would say they're intense and they're fun, right? We're going to demand a lot out of them, but we're going to have fun doing it. Like, I don't need you to shut the doors because, you know, I, I'm going to be cursing at you and professors are walking by or whatever. So, um, but when you walk into practice, by the way, you know, my AD, when you walk into practice, like, I'm not going to talk to you, you know, like, like, like I'm going to be focused on my team, right? Like, you're more than welcome to come in, but this is who I am. You know, this is what it's going to be. This is how it's going to going to what it's going to produce. Um, I think with the parents, to me, I was always very direct and honest with my players, and that's where that's where it started. So, and I know in high school the parent dynamic is a little bit different, and I don't know that that's a challenge, quite honestly, that I could meet. Um, you know, they're a little bit older in college because that's the time when like mom and dad are supposed to understand that they're going away and they're figuring it out on their own. But I always, always started directly with my players. So if a parent had an issue, the first thing I could say was, have you talked to your son? Right. I I've explained it to him. Um, but again, being very transparent with who I was, you know, and, and, you know, if parents wanted to come to practice, sure, come to practice. I'm proud of what we do. I'm proud of the way we operate. Um, you know, just make sure they know what to expect. You know, um, once you get that to the players and you get the players to buy into that, you know, to be honest, I had very few issues with parents when I was a head coach. Uh, I was lucky in that regard. And a lot of times if there was one, the, the, the player would be coming to me being like, coach, we're all right. Like you and I are fine. Like my mom's acting wild right now, but don't worry about it. Like you're okay. So I just think being transparent and honest about who you are uh, up front is really important. Stay consistent with it. You know, the student body is a little bit different. Um, the student body really just needs to see, you, you just need to engage them, right? You need, you need to, you know, I obviously show them a good product. They want the team to be good, but get them engaged, invite them to practices. You know, you don't necessarily have to prove to them that this is something, you know, for them, it's got to be something they enjoy, you know, whereas with the parents, with the administration, uh, there, there's a character development element, there's winning and losing, there's all that stuff. Um, you know, if you engage the student body, I think you can get them on your side. Coach, one of the things you talked about in the book was um, your journey in developing your identity as a coach. What advice would you have for young coaches who are kind of 
on the fence. They're trying to determine, okay, am I a defensive coach or am I more of an offensive coach? What are your thoughts and, and advice there? Start with an honest evaluation of yourself. Uh, you know, I always, I always, when I was an assistant coach, I worked for a guy, you know, Tim Welsh at, at Providence who gave me, you know, I was 26 years old. I was a big East assistant, you know, gave me a ton of responsibility. You know, coach Welsh always clapped when the ball went in the basket in practice. Right. And, and most coaches clap when the ball goes in the basket. Um, so I just started paying attention to the defensive side of the ball. You know, like every time the ball goes in, that's great. But you know what? Somebody broke down defensively, you know, probably or something happened that. So um, that kind of became the way I watched the game, you know, and, and I had to realize that when I became a head coach, when I was forming my identity, I also I became a believer that that side of the ball was where you could separate yourself. You know, I thought if you could be great defensively, you could be consistently good enough to win every night. Um, you know, I, I would also say, so, so evaluating yourself, honestly, like, who are you? What do you like to see? I see the game from a defensive standpoint. That's who I am, right? Hopefully in my next head coaching position, like I've thought about this, you know, I want to have somebody really dynamic offensively on my staff, you know, and I had a couple of guys like that at Maine, but I'm not sure I gave them enough freedom to really control that. So, um, but, but be honest about who you are um, and then, you know, study the game and, and write stuff down and, and make sure you, you, you know, keep it in a folder, keep it in a Word document, however you do it, notepad, journals. Um, you know, there is so much stuff that, uh, you know, you take away from coaches, good and bad, coaches that you work for, stuff that you see, stuff that you love, other teams that you play against. That will go into your identity. Um, the last thing I would say is be flexible, right? I mean, I, I would rather win than be right, you know? So, like, I, you know, I mean, even Bobby Knight was going to throw a zone out there at some point if it would help him win a Big Ten game or win a national championship, right? So don't, uh, don't get stuck. I mean, I was a man-to-man -man coach. Like, that was our identity. That was who we were. Um, but – I mean, I remember winning an NCAA tournament game up at Oswego to go to the Sweet 16 where, you know, we threw our matchup zone out there for one possession and they kind of stared at it funny. And we ended up playing like the last 18 minutes in matchup zone. We hadn't played it all year, you know, so um, be flexible. Your identity, your leadership approach is always evolving. It's always changing. Um, and that doesn't mean being consistent. You can be consistent to your principles. Uh, but understand, um, you know, it's really important to be flexible with who you are instead of putting a firm foot down and saying, well, this is how we do things. Back when you were at uh, Rhode Island College, you had a series of leadership clinics or events that you held uh, when you were there. Talk a little bit about that experience and, and why you chose to do that. And maybe some of the different speakers that you had come in, it kind of really shifted your, your mindset in, in terms of leadership ideas and thoughts uh, that you were able to kind of take from them? It was called the Dynamic Leadership Academy, and, I, and I'm hoping to, to revive it. Actually, I was going to do it last year and then with COVID, but we didn't get to it. But uh, I'm planning on doing it again uh, this offseason. And really, it started with a couple of things. 
I was on the road a lot as a division three coach and, and working camps and doing that to recruit and had a lot of young coaches who would always come to me and talk to me, you know, Hey, how did you get into it? Um, you know, how did you become a head coach? What's the right path? Just those conversations. And, and, and really I thought, number one, we don't really have a, you know, a training program for coaches, right? It's, it's basically figure it out on your own, right? If you want to be a college coach, you know, try and get on somebody's staff if you're lucky enough to do that at any level. And then you either like what they do or you don't like what they do. And you put it in one category or the other. Now, there's a ton of stuff like podcasts like this and, and clinics like Layson that you've done that I've done with you where you can gain information. But for the most part, you have to do it yourself. Um, and then the second thing was I learned when I became a head coach that at least 75% of what I talked about was about leadership, was about approach, was about mentality more than it was about basketball, about what offense we were running, what defense we were running, how to beat this screen. So, um, you know, I, I just felt like we don't teach leadership. We don't necessarily teach team. You know, like I wanted to be a coach when I went to college. I was a sociology major. I got a master's in communications. I never once took a course on leadership, you know, or team dynamics. It's just not generally part of, of the criteria yet, not just for coaches, but for so many to be successful, right? Leadership qualities, leadership approach is important. So I, I started the academy with those two things in mind as a way, you know, it was a, a sort of a summer clinic to get better, uh, but it wasn't X's and O's, you know, it wasn't about basketball. Uh, and what we did was, was I connected with uh, leaders, you know, some head coaches, you know, Ed Cooley was a guest, Kyle Smith, who's now at Washington State, who I went to college with, you know, King Rice, you know, Mike Rice actually came and spoke after he had gotten let go at Rutgers, um, you know, some athletic directors, you know, Rich Petricioni was the vice president at Iona College, um, Thor Bjorn, who's the AD at URI, uh, some business people, you know, Phil O'Brien, who's a Harvard Business School graduate, talking about principles of business and change management uh, and handling adversity. So it became sort of this well-rounded leadership approach clinic. And, and my thought uh, similar to a lot of the leadership training that I do now and, and in writing the book was that hopefully it'll spark some ideas for everybody to sort of form your own leadership approach, you know, to, to um, help your leadership approach evolve. And, and uh, I really enjoy it. Leadership has become kind of a passion of mine. And that's why I was really you know, excited to write the book about a team that I coach. But also, man, there's so much stuff I screwed up and so much stuff I learned and so much stuff we were able to implement that worked that I thought crossed a lot of boundaries with regards to leadership. Perfect segue. Coach, you had a mantra motto, win anyway. And maybe it's a product like you talked about, Maine has challenges, but every high school job, every college job has challenges. But maybe expand on win anyway. Absolutely. It, it was a no excuses mentality, right? The first day I was a head coach at Rhode Island College, our gym wasn't available. So literally October 15th, my first practice, our, our building, our arena, we had a really nice facility, was not available because there was an academic conference using the gym. So we had to practice in the rec center. 
and it was raining. And at a Division three state school in Rhode Island, when it's raining heavily, guess what happens to the roof in the rec center, right? So there's water dripping on the floor. And, you know, so, so there were challenges, right? My first practice, we've got buckets on the floor and our assistants have towels and they're wiping it up and we're trying to get through practice. Um, like you said, I mean, there are very few places, even even at the college level, that don't have challenges, right? But certainly at the high school level, where you know you're you're taking on ten, you're you know you're if the floor needs to be cleaned, you're cleaning it, right? If the laundry needs to be done, you're probably taking it home. Um, so it just became there were so many things that could have derailed us at Rhode Island College, and the same thing at Maine. And quite honestly, I think. That approach is probably what helped me get the main job, the whole win anyway. It was just there will never be any excuses in our program. You know, I, I would all our kid our kids at Rick still laugh, right? Like Keene State was our big rival. And they would always hear me say, like, do you think Keene State cares that it's cold in here? Or do you think Keene State cares that so and so is hurt today and care can't practice? Like we're going to Keene State on Saturday, and there's going to be a scoreboard, and we're going to win or we're going to lose, right? So win anyway just became no excuses. The officials are bad, win anyway. You know, we've got a couple of guys injured, win anyway. Uh, we have to go on the road, and, and, you know, the bus broke down, win anyway, right? No one's going to add they, – they, they don't make accommodations in the standings for misfortune. Uh, and that became a simple way to get our guys bought in to the fact that like it, it almost became a badge of courage, right? When something got screwed up in the gym or whatever, they'd be like, yup, win anyway. Like, here we go. We're going to win anyway. You know, or when, you know, two guys were in foul trouble late in the second half, they'd be saying it out loud. And, um, you know, hopefully it instilled in them that no matter what you're doing, like nobody wants to hear about your excuses. You know, when, when you go to work, when you're 30 years old and you're trying to raise a family and, and, you know, you got to get the job done. And if you don't get the job done, they're going to find somebody else to do it. You know, you just touched on injured players and we've always preached to kids on the bench, you know, stay ready, stay ready. But your philosophy uh, on how, when you had a, one of your good ones go down with an injury, you know, how did you convey that message to your team in the locker room who just saw, you know, Lason go down, he's hurt. And how did you convey that yet build that confidence up for the remainder kids in that locker room? I think it starts like everything with your long-term culture. Um, it becomes, you know, it, it, like, so I was, I was pretty cold with regards to injuries, to be quite honest. Like, like if somebody went down in practice, like I wasn't stopping everything and running over there and, you know, like, okay, you know, get it. You're all right. You know, obviously make sure the kid's okay, but I didn't want to make a big deal out of injuries. Right. Um, we also played a lot of guys. So, so I played 10, 11 guys and I was comfortable doing that just because I had 10, I had good players and, and I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to keep everybody engaged and keep them fresh. And I think when you have injuries that helps because you're not relying on your ninth man who hasn't played in six games to go in and, and help you win a game. So I do think the long-term culture um, has a big impact there, the way you handle it overall. You know, it, it went back to the win anyway uh, motto as well, where it was like, you know, hey, look, guys, you know, we don't have our starting center, but the game's going to be played. And, and I think, 
you know, the, the story you're referencing in the book was actually that game I mentioned where we won at Oswego, where our starting center came in the morning of the game after we had won the night before in the first round of the tournament and his foot had blown up and he had no idea what happened and he couldn't, couldn't play. And, you know, everybody's stomach dropped and we got on the bus and it was quiet and we went over to shoot around and I was like, man, I got to do something to shake it, you know, to, to, to shake these guys loose. And I basically just brought them together and I said, look, Mike's not going to play, you know, Carl, you know, Darius is going to move to the five. Carl's going to start at the four and next Friday, they're going to hold the sweet 16 and we're either going to be there or we're not. And nobody's going to care about Mike's foot. So, um, I just think it's another – it's an easy excuse to get behind, right? And, and, and the last thing I would say is, is, you know, somebody getting injured. As a head coach, if you're, in a, if you're in a position where, like, you're dealing with media or people are asking you questions about it or whether it's with your own team, I just wouldn't talk about it. Like, well, you know, we're going to have our hands full, especially without Mike, you know, or we're going to – you know, we're going to have to do this especially considering Tom might not play, right? You just put it in their mindset that things are going to be harder because this guy, you know, is hurt. Um, obviously, you know it has an impact if somebody's out of the game and you have to play with less guys or move guys around. But I think if your long-term culture instills confidence in your team, they will expect, you know, a lot of us say next man up. That's a phrase you hear a lot. But we don't really deal with it until it's time for that next man to step up. And then we just say, okay, next man up. I, I think long term in your culture, you have to develop that mentality uh, so that when you face that adversity, your guys are confident to handle it. Maybe share, you know, again, I touched on Timmy Welsh and Ed. Share something, maybe it could be a soft skill, it could be the best basketball thing, either one of those two ultra successful coaches that you just believe you'll always take with you from either one, a soft skill or something basketball wise they do. Absolutely. Yeah. Great stuff. You know, the thing that always stuck out to me with coach Welsh was the importance of those 30 nights, right? Like we only get all of this stuff we do is for those 30 nights. And he always had his team ready to play on those 30 nights, right? So all the weightlifting, all the conditioning, all the, you know, the scouting, everything that we do, you know, in high school, you get, you're lucky, you know, maybe you get 25 games, right? You're so invested in this. So um, he puts such a premium on the mentality of being ready, just, just doing everything we had to, to do to be ready to compete on those 30 nights, right? It was, um, it was just a mentality that our guys like like those those nights were just sacred to our guys the way that coach approached it and I really appreciated that um, with coach Cooley it's his it's his relationships it's his personality you know he is he is as good as I've ever seen at developing relationships starting in the recruiting process right being honest um, being direct. Uh, you know, getting the family involved. He genuine. He has a genuine, authentic care and concern about people first, and a selfless approach. And, and I don't like. I think that would be a soft skill that a lot of people would say, like like you said, where it's like you know, I, I didn't appreciate how much that can translate into the trust uh, and 
the the togetherness of the culture based on those relationships the way and and now he can get after you too like he's not just a like he's certainly going to challenge you you know so i don't mean to say like hey he's always got his arm around you but man no matter what's going on those guys know how much he cares about them uh, and that allows him to coach them at an elite level and that's something i'll always think about coach you had an opportunity to have on your staff at maine um current uh, West Point uh, assistant coach, Zach Bover. Talk a little bit about Zach. Uh, you know, he, he is a great share of the game, uh, a student of the game. I've, I've had some great conversations with him, but, you know, you had a chance to work with him, you know, one-on-one in the office every day. Just talk a little bit about that and, and just, you know, what some of the things maybe Zach brought to the table. Zach is the most intellectually curious person I've ever met. He has such an appetite for learning and for information. Uh, and, and his mind, you know, just takes on information in ways that I like that I can't like, I, I'm like, okay, I need a break. Like that's awesome stuff. But like, I, you know, I'm on overload here. I mean, Zach, you know, like the image of Zach is like on his bed in the hotel room with like falling asleep with like a coffee cup spilled over and his laptop on the floor, you know, and it's like, you know, it's, it's six in the morning and it, you know, our other assistant gets up and is like, Hey Zach, come on. You know, we got, we got, you know, breakfast in an hour or whatever. So, um, just, just an, just an incredible mind. I, I don't want to just say mind for the game, but he's got such an incredible, uh, appetite and curiosity. Um, and, and what he's done, you know, um, with his website, you know, pick I'm sure plenty of your listeners are on there. Um, you know, just sharing, I, I mean, I, I texted him today, we were talking about matchup zone, you know, and I immediately texted him and say, Hey, who are the three to five guys that play the best matchup zone that we can study? You know, like it was one of our off season things. Like, um, he's my go-to guy for that. So, uh, just a brilliant mind when it comes to the game really has a great way of, uh, making players better, right. Of, of like, uh, relentless effort in the gym. Uh, to put guys in position to improve, um, you know, he's unique in his in what he can handle mentally and what he can intake and, and the information that he's got that he can share. Um, you know, I'm going to be really excited when he becomes a head coach because it's going to be really fascinating. Um, he will he will certainly uh, be one step ahead of the game at least uh, as far as what he wants to do from a basketball perspective and player development. I, I guess it would be safe to say that the seeds of, of your book really started with your blog. And I, I know that I've enjoyed reading, you know, the, the, the postings that you put on there. And, you know, there's been some that are, you know, you, you've been pretty honest and open, you know, about different things that are going on. Just kind of share a little bit about that. What was the, the motivation and, and just kind of how you kind of plan, how you put those things together. I started the web and the blog when I was a Division three coach, and honestly, I was at Rick after a couple of years. I've always enjoyed writing, and I, you know, it was a way to kind of uh, separate our program and myself a little bit and give us a little bit of a brand identity. You know, just being transparent. Um, you know, at the Division three level, it's not like you're taking trips and you're in their living room and you're, you know, you're flying to recruit and this and that. So it was a way to, you know, when you connected with families and, and players for them to learn what you were all about. And, and the sharing of ideas on the blog 
just made me better. You know, I'd connect with people like you two guys, you know, somebody would send me an email and say, Hey, you know, you were talking about body language, man, I'm really interested how you came to that conclusion. Or, you know, when you mentioned, you know, your leadership approach. Um, so it made me better, um, as a coach to have to think about it and, and, and deliver it in a way that was concise and direct, uh, which is the way you have to talk to your team. And, and then the book really, I just felt like that program that we built and that team that I was a part of when I first got to Rhode Island College, that culture was incredibly tight. Uh, and I don't know that I'll ever be a part of a culture uh, that special again, to be honest. I hope, I hope I am, but I just don't know if it's possible with all the things that came together with that group and the success that we had. So I wanted to write the story of the book and along the way, you know, the things that I learned and the th- the mistakes that I made and hopefully some leadership points that would make other people think, you know, the blog certainly helped me uh, as a catalyst to writing the book um, and writing in general has just helped me organize my thoughts and it's made me a better coach. So that's really how it, it connected and, and the book came about. Coach, how about one basketball rule you absolutely hate that you would change the rule book today? Instant replay. I've hated instant replay since they put it in the NFL in 1987 or whenever it, you know. Here's my problem with instant replay. We still don't get it right, right? We still don't get it right. We can't. Right. So here's the scenario that I hate the most. Right. Drive baseline. There's a little bit of a bump. Right. 50 50 could be called. But, you know, the ref wants to let him play. You know, two guys collide a little bit, you know, reaches in for the ball. It goes out of bounds. Right. I don't want to call a foul. So I'll just give, you know, ball goes the same way. Right. Like we're not going to call it out on the offense. It's not a turnover because if it was a turnover. I probably should have called a foul there. But now we go to replay in the last two minutes of a game in that very scenario, and if it touched the offensive player's finger last, even though he clearly got fouled, right, you can't call the foul by rule. You can't say, well, wait a minute, that was a foul. We should put him on the line to shoot two free throws. You have to then turn, you know, make it a turnover and give the ball because on replay it shows he touched it last, and there's only certain things that we can, you know, correct on replay. There's only certain times. It, it, it chops up the flow of the game, right? You know, remember the days when somebody used to hit a shot at the buzzer and everybody would celebrate and go crazy? You know, well, that doesn't happen anymore, right? Somebody hits a shot at the buzzer and then everyone stands around and the refs are trying to calm everybody down because we got to go check on it. So um, I just don't like replay at all. Plus you can manipulate it, right? I mean, I'm out of timeouts with, 12 seconds to go and the ball goes out of bounds, I'm telling them to go look at it. Hey, go look at it because I need to bring my team over, right? Or all I have to do is point to the clock. Hey, fellas, the clock kept running. You know, we lost an extra second there. You know, you got to go check that. Well, now I get an extra timeout. So it manipulates the game. It chops up the end of the game. And I just don't believe we still get it right. I think it's absurd that you can go to replay and figure out who it went out of bounds off of. But if there's clearly a foul you can't then call the foul. It just, that doesn't make sense to me. So I would eliminate replay. And you know what? We all have to deal with it. Sometimes they get them right. Sometimes they get them wrong. Um, You know, I've lost games because of, you know, bad calls by the officials. It happens. I'm sure I've won some 
because of that as well, um, you know, I, I think we have to learn to deal with it. My last one, Coach, March Madness, a team that you think is peaking that can, you know, get to the second weekend. And part B is Gonzaga or who do you like to win it? Um, if the question is ever X versus the field, I'm always taking the field. So, so I just um, – I like Alabama to win it. Uh, that, that to me is a team that's just – I mean – if you watch them, you know, I watched them play Mississippi State in the semifinals, I think, or the quarterfinals of the SEC, and they just obliterated them. And I know they, they had a tough challenge with, with LSU, but uh, Alabama's deep. They're tough. They're, they, guard, you know, they guard and they score, which a lot of people don't think you can play at that pace. So um, I'm going to say Alabama wins it. I think a team, um, you know, it's funny. I, I think – I think UConn's a chance, got a chance to get to the second weekend. I think they're really good. But they're matched up against Alabama, I believe, in the second round if they win. So they're, they're like a team. I, I think people are sleeping on them a little bit. But then I saw the draw, and I was like, man, that's going to be hard. So um, another team that can get to the second weekend uh, that maybe you don't expect, this might sound crazy, but Colgate could could win twice like Colgate's really good really efficient offensively um you know I know they've got Arkansas in the first round and they're not going to be but they are used to winning they're really well coached uh and they can really score so it, it wouldn't shock me if they were a team with a high number next to them that was still playing the second weekend coach one quick question before we close it out here um if if for a high school coach is there a particular team that you would recommend or a particular program that you would recommend a high school coach study and possibly pick some ideas from as far as, you know, putting a system defensively or just one program you're like, boy, this, this one really fascinates me. Well, it, it, there's a, you know, a couple of things I think about with that question. I would, here's what I would do. I would go to practice at the closest division three school that has no money. Like, like find the coach that has, you know, limited budget, state school, whatever it is, who do, and, and go watch them and see how they're, what they're getting out of their guys, how they're doing it. Um, some of the best coaches that I have ever uh, coached against were at the Division three level. So um, fr from, a, from a, you know, a Division one standpoint, I would look at the way Alabama and Gonzaga play offense. Um, I would say, I mean, the best team defensively, um, I mean, I, that's a great question. Um, I would, I would look to West Virginia maybe for a pretty unique style of defense and somebody who's not afraid to adapt. And I think, um, you know, I, I think coach Huggins, has done a great job of, of evolving as a coach. And I think you can learn a lot from that. So that might be one where I would go to as far as film and on the defensive end. Perfect. So for those coaches out there looking to purchase a copy of your book or uh, learn more about you, what's, what's the best way to connect? Yeah, you can find me online at coach Bob Walsh uh, on Twitter and 
the website is coachbobwalsh.com. There's a website for the book. The book is called Entitled to Nothing. That website is entitledtonothingbook.com. That has all the information, but it's all it's available online at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, IndieBound. So, um, and, and please, uh, you know, uh, my email is on the site, but bwalsh23 at live.com. I love, I've gotten a ton of great feedback on the book, how it's impacted you, questions that you have, thoughts that it's triggered in you. I've learned a lot from other coaches, so I love hearing feedback on it. So anybody who checks it out, please let me know what you think. And then as far as you, you mentioned the uh, the leadership uh, event, possibly, you know, if if you have another one in the future, I, I'm assuming we'd be able to find out more about that either through Twitter or through the web. Or through the yeah, website. it'll be it'll be on the website. It's called the Dynamic Leadership Academy and uh, CoachBobWalsh.com. And certainly if you're on Twitter at CoachBobWalsh, all the information will be there. Perfect. Coach, thank you so much for being a part of this uh, this episode. I, I know Jeff and I both have uh, – have really enjoyed picking your brain and, and just kind of getting to to know you better, uh, you know, through our just our conversation here live and, the, and of course uh, before we before we came on to uh, came on the episode. I appreciate it, guys. It was uh, it was an awesome conversation. I love it. So thanks for doing this and for for everything you guys do to help the game. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So for coaches, uh, again, thank you for joining us today uh, for this episode. Again, uh, feel free to to reach out to us. Give us feedback, uh, positive or negative, about uh, where we're where we're going with this. Again, we just want to make sure that we're trying to create as much value and give as much value as possible uh, back to the game. So again, uh, follow us on Twitter. It's the fifth quarter, the number five T H Q T R. Again, um, find us on Instagram, uh, the website, Facebook to come soon. We're we're working on that. Jeff has reminded me that we're missing a couple of pieces, mainly my photo and my bio. So we'll. We'll wait to get that here just as soon as possible. But again, thank you for being a part of today's episode and uh, look forward to connecting with everybody again soon.